you have your Bibles, why don't you take them and turn with me to the book of Philippians. We've been on Sunday mornings going verse by verse through the book of Philippians together. Last Sunday we finished chapter 1, which brings us to chapter 2, verse 1 this morning as we continue together. And if you do need a Bible, there are some in the aisles. You're welcome to lift your hand up. We'll get a copy to you so you can follow along with us in God's Word. And Philippians 2, actually chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, kind of flow together. They're a group of verses that really link one another. This morning, we're going to reserve our comments to chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. Uh, But please understand, verses 1 through 4 are given in context of verses 1 through 11, as Jesus is then held forth on the latter end of the passage as the incredible example uh, of what he is saying here in verses 1 through 4. And in light of that, what I'm actually going to do, that we're going to reserve our comments to verse 1 through 4 in exposition. I want to just read verse 5, because it's kind of that hinge connecting verse that goes together with those two sections. And if you're turned there with me, would you stand together with me out of respect for God's word as I read our passage of scripture? Philippians 2 verse 1 says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And then Paul adds, and let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then, of course, the following verses, he explains how what he's asking is exactly an exemplary picture of what Christ has done for us. And Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that we can know in advance before we even look at it together that it is alive and powerful like a sharp two-edged sword. Lord, that it can divide between even what's soulish and spiritual in our being and judge the thoughts and intents of our hearts this morning. So we pray that your word would be profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness that as men and women of God, we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work to serve you. So Lord, bless your word this morning. We ask your spirit's anointing upon it that it would speak to our hearts personally. And we pray these things expectantly now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, one of the disheartening realities, I think, of living in our world is to both observe as well as to at times personally experience how poorly people treat one another. You know, whether it's just in our world in general as you watch what takes place in society or if you're out among society and you get a, a dose yourself of how poorly uh, people can treat you on occasion or quite honestly, maybe for you it's uh, something that you see take place regularly and repeatedly in the family relationship or among marriages at times. I'm baffled and shocked on occasion to see how poorly at times spouses can treat one another. It's, it's almost embarrassing uh, on occasion if you see it take place publicly. And it is truly disheartening how honestly, how poorly we can treat one another. And as a result of that, then how difficult it becomes for people to get along. Again, how difficult at times it is for people to get along in our culture, for people to get along in schools and job places, how difficult it is for people to get along in their marriage relationships. And I tell you this, I think one of the biggest differences uh, among the church as in comparison to the world, one of the clearest distinctions people should see in Christians and among the church as in comparison to people among the world should be how we treat one another. It should be the ways in which we can actually get along in harmony despite the incredible diversity that still does exist among us. In fact, remember Jesus himself in John 15, 35 
John 15, 35, Jesus said this. He said, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. In other words, Jesus was saying one of the clearest ways that you can represent me it's not by just quoting Bible verses, because I know lots of people that quote Bible verses and act like a jerk and idiot at the same time. And I say that just to tone down how frank I mean that. I know lots of people who stand up and say hallelujah, praise the Lord, and then they walk out in the parking lot and afterwards they're as mean and cruel to their spouse or to somebody. And, and it, it doesn't impress me. I'm not impressed with how high people can jump. What I care about is how straight do you walk when you hit the ground. And I think that's what God cares about. And Jesus himself so clearly said to us, look, by this, here's a way that the people in the world will know that you're actually connected to me, you have a relationship with me, and that you're my followers. He says, it's actually going to be by the way that, that you relate to one another. The fact that Jesus said people will look at you as a Christian or look at us among the church, and they will see demonstrated this incredible loving concern that they don't see in the world where people are you know, stabbing each other in the back and being cruel and harsh and hurtful and self-centered towards one another. And Jesus says, but yet when they look at you because of the love that you have for one another because of your relationship with me and they see that you actually care about one another, you support one another, you stand by one another, you sacrifice and serve one another. And Jesus says, as you demonstrate that kind of care and loving concern, it will cr clearly indicate to the world there's something about you and the connection that you genuinely have with me and one of the clear characteristics of Jesus was it not it was that humble love in the heart of our Lord that humble love that was displayed by what Jesus did for others Jesus had a self-sacrificing nature and it led him repeatedly to deny himself and to serve the needs of other people one of the autobiographical statements that Jesus made about himself that I love is where Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, that's astonishing. If there's anybody that you would say, Hey, that person's important. We should all serve him. We should all take care of him. He should get the VIP treatment. He stepped out of heaven. He was God in human flesh. If anybody should get VIP treatment, it was Jesus. And yet Jesus said, when I came in the flesh to live among you as a man, to represent what the perfect man should live like, Jesus said, I did not come to be served. Shocking. He said, I came to serve. In other words, Jesus did not look for and expect to be taken care of by others. Instead, he was continually always trying to serve others. And then ultimately, he sacrificed himself completely for the benefit and the enrichment of others. And we can accurately say Jesus' life was marked, was it not, by being other-centered. His life was characterized by being other-centered. And Romans 8, verse 29, and 2 Corinthians 3, 18, tells us that God's work in our lives as Christians, once we get saved and the Holy Spirit enters inside of us, and we belong to the Lord, that part of God's predominant plan for our life, Romans 8, 29, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, says is that we are being conformed, what? Into the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. That is, as we walk with the Lord and His Spirit is working in us, one of the primary things the Holy Spirit's trying to do is to work in me and to work in you so that the nature, the disposition, the characteristics of Jesus would be continually developing us, we could say, so that we would continuously and progressively become more Christ-like. That the nature of Jesus would become more our nature. And in these verses in front of us, the Holy Spirit is seeking to instruct and to exhort us to that end. For the purpose that we might understand, as you can tell by what we read, that we might understand how to treat one another properly, the way that Jesus would treat people. That we might understand how to actually get along. And that we might understand what unity means. And that we might understand how to experience unity in relationships. And by some chance, a far stretch, if you actually think you could use some help in that area, it'd be really good to pay attention to what the Bible says here. I don't know about you, but I find I constantly need help in this area. 
In fact, verses 3 and 4 in some senses are, are verses that I'm constantly bringing myself back to, convicted and saying, oh man, Lord, help me. In fact, I look at verses 3 and 4 and they're, they're kind of those verses in the Bible where, you know, sometimes when you, for me anyway, I read the word of God and sometimes I go, that doesn't really say that, does it? Why does that have to be in there for me? That's, that's really tough. That's a tall order there. And there are certain verses as I read the word of God because it is his word, I go, wow, really, Lord? Really? That's, really? And verses three and four are incredible verses because they honestly just tell us, look, this is how you should treat one another. This is what the heart of God is for how we would relate to one another, interact with one another. Remember the context as we go into our verses this morning is Paul in the prior verses was just speaking about having conduct that was worthy of the gospel, he said in verse 27. In other words, he's speaking in this moment about behaving in a manner consistent with the profession of our faith. That we would not be guilty of claiming spiritual truths and then living in contradiction to the very truths that we're telling people that we believe and that we say are correct. In chapter 2, he then says, notice verse 1, therefore. That's a connecting word when you see it in print. The word therefore draws you back to what was just said. Point being this, it indicates there's a connection to the prior thoughts. At this point, the Holy Spirit through Paul is still continuing with this idea of requesting proper Christian conduct, requesting the way whereby we might live worthy of what we profess in our belief system and that our practice and profession would have consistency among them. We wouldn't descend into unworthy behavior even amidst times of trial and suffering and pressure which he mentions that we at times deal with there even in verse 29. So look with me back in verse 1. He begins, therefore, still asking for conduct worthy of the gospel. Therefore, he says, if there's any consolation in Christ... If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy, he says, make me happy, by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. So Paul's making an appeal here that the Philippian believers would endeavor, notice, to dwell together in unity, that they would seek to have loving harmony among themselves in their relationships and it seems his central request in this section is found there in verse 2. Now verse 1 we'll see in a moment we're gonna almost look backwards here verse 1 you'll notice there Paul's speaking about and showing I believe that as believers we do have the adequate resources to live the way God's Word requests of us and in verses 3 and 4 he then lays forth some pretty challenging things in regards to our attitude and he says look if you want to live in unity you want to treat one another properly this is what's going to be required of your attitude personally in the way you interact with one another but let's focus first verse two on the request that we find there in the second verse paul's primary request he says fulfill my joy by being like-minded having the same love being of one accord and of one mind so it's an appeal for unity an appeal for unity. And please understand, Christianity, sometimes people confuse this, Christianity does not teach nor ask for uniformity. It asks for spiritual unity. And there is a difference. Uniformity is where everybody's exactly alike. For example, you go to school and everybody has to wear the same uh, you know, uniform or whatever, or, or military. That's uniformity, where everybody has to be alike in a sense. There, there's not permitted to be variation. There should not be variety. There shouldn't be any differences. Unity is where there are differences. There are variations, and uh, there are uh, differences among people, but yet, even though there are the, the presence of differences, there's still unity among the unit of people whereby people with their differences and their variations and their individuality still operate, operate together in harmony for a united purpose. 
That's unity. That's what the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12 and other passages talk about. We're all different members. We have different parts. One's an eye, one's an ear, one's a foot, one's a hand. We're different by design, but yet we are functioning together in harmony in a sense to the point where we even appreciate the diversity among us because it complements one another. That's what the heart of the Lord is for us. It's not about the absence of differences, nor should it ever be about the abolishment of people's uniqueness or the abolishment of, of people's individuality, but that we appreciate diversity and yet we agree to function together in a way that is cooperative to advance the cause of the gospel, to exist together as a family. So Paul appeals here in verse 2, notice, for their being, first of all, he says, like-minded. Like-minded. And the idea there of being like-minded means the same pattern of thought about things. Where We might say, hey, we think alike. We, we kind of tend to think alike about things. That's the idea of like-minded. Paul's going to say of Timothy later in chapter 2, verse 20, Regarding Timothy, he says, For I have nobody like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Paul recognized something in Timothy as a fellow minister. And he said, look, you know what? The thing that's great about this guy in partnership and ministry is he's like-minded. He's got the same attitude and perspective towards the way ministry should happen as compared to maybe the way that... that it and Paul says he's like-minded. We kind of view things the same way. We kind of have the same overall perspective about how things should operate. He also speaks here about being of, notice, one accord and one mind, Paul says. And the idea of to be one accord, it comes from the word cord there where you, you get the, the term of, of heart. And, and he's speaking of having the same purpose, that you have the same passions for things. That you're one accord, meaning that you want to go in the same direction, your pursuits, your paths. There's a harmony of desire. You're of one heart. The idea is there. Again, if I can illustrate, uh, kind of almost like an orchestra. If you envision in your mind an orchestra with many different people, they're all playing different instruments and they even have different times and so forth. So you have this large orchestra, multiple people, many instruments, but yet they're all being directed, what, by one conductor. There's one conductor that they're all looking to to take their cues from. They play different instruments, they do different things, but they're still all looking to the one conductor. One person isn't breaking off in a solo and doing their own thing to draw a little attention. They're all following the same conductor and they're all playing the same song with the purpose of harmoniously and cooperatively working together to make a beautiful sound that's pleasing and profitable in the music that they produce. And that's the idea here of, again, being like-minded, of one accord, one mind, same love. These repetitive terms in verse 2 are basically all descriptions that request for being unified in heart, in mind, and in purpose. That's what Paul's saying. It made me really happy. It blessed me, he said, if you could be unified in heart and mind and in purpose. Now, to some extent, we know from the book of Philippians that there was some kind of an internal struggle taking place among a relationship, it seems, within the church. In fact, if you want to turn over chapter 4, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2, Paul there says, I implore Iodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And then in the next verse he says, hey, do me a favor, help these women. So Paul here, again, the idea of implore, he's saying, look, I'm begging you, I'm beseeching you. Iodia and Syntyche, and again, what the problem was over, we're not told. Was it that they maybe both wanted the same position in the church and so there were, I don't know. Was it that they had two different perspectives on you know, whether the church should sing hymns or praise songs? I don't know. Was it that, well, we should do this? It could have been anything. It could have just been an interpersonal relationship. They rubbed each other the wrong way. Something happened, a little offense, something got gossipy, you know, whatever. I mean, we could theoretically come up with 50 different options. The bottom line is this. There was something that was happening. There was an internal struggle in the relationship and Paul says, it needs to be resolved. And he says, I'm begging you, I'm imploring you, be of the same mind in the Lord. Come on, you're in the same family, he's saying. 
in the Lord, whatever you got to do, humble yourself, forgive, apologize, let it go, confess, talk it out, whatever you got to do in the Lord, he says, I'm begging you, and he even tells other people, and, and whatever you got to do to help these women out, would you please, somebody help, mediate it if need be. So there was something that was there, and again, whether it was an isolated problem or something that was beginning to transpire among the church of Philippi, I don't know, but Paul found it wise, therefore, to incorporate this overall appeal to guard against disunity. And there are lots of things that can cause and create disunity. Lots of different things cause disunity. Things that happen, attitudes in our hearts, and therefore we have to be on guard against disunity. And I'll tell you why, because disunity, disunity is like a deteriorating element. It's like an element that just brings deterioration that ultimately just dismantles relationships. In fact, remember again, the words of Jesus, listen to our Lord's words, Matthew 12, Jesus said this, a house divided against itself, he said, will not stand. Jesus says when there is division among a house, Jesus says, when that exists, if it is not dealt with, if it's not handled properly, if it's not addressed, if things don't come into the light, and hey, let's not just brush it under the carpet and try and just forget it. If it's not dealt with, and disunity, and division, and unhealthy thing, and he says, if it's not dealt with, he says, it won't stand. Things will fall apart. Things will begin to dismantle in relationships, and there'll be deterioration between relationships and people and Jesus says it's a guaranteed outcome a house divided against itself he says a house divided will not stand and see that happens in businesses if you have a business a place of employment whether you have two employees or 200 employees or 2,000 employees if there is a divisiveness and a division hey we're in this camp you're in that camp talk to anybody that operates a business you can't operate a business like that you can't be going in two different directions and trying to be productive and work together in business. When there's division, it's got to stop. Everybody's got to get on the same page because is, that won't stand. The business will start to fall apart. Things will start to deteriorate. Same way again, whether it be in a family. If you have a family or a marriage relationship and there's division there and you have two different perspectives in the home and you're going in two different directions, houses crumble over that. Marriages fall apart over that. Divorces happen and children are hurt and things become messy. So important that when disunity begins to happen, the disunity is dealt with. Has to be resolved. We have to realize it for the dangerous thing that it is. It's a deteriorating element. It will dismantle relationships. And the same applies in the body of Christ. And that's what Paul's saying here to this church. He's saying, listen, he's saying, I'm asking you, fulfill my joy. Be of one mind. Be unified. Be of one heart, he says, so that things don't begin to dismantle and there's not a division in the church interior that then causes, again, greater problems as it compounds. And the way to guard against that disunity is really to just proactively pursue being unified. If you proactively pursue being unified, that's why Paul gives this instruction, he says that will help guard against disunity. Seek to do things, to be proactive, to try and facilitate a unified spirit in heart and mind and purpose. Because unity, on the other side, is what promotes health in relationships. Listen to Psalm 133. The psalmist says, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing life forevermore. I love that, how good and pleasant. It's, it's a good thing when people are unified. It's so pleasant when there's unity in a church, when there's unity in a marriage or a family, there's unity in a business or an organization, when there's that unified spirit. It's a really good thing. Good things can happen. It's a really pleasant thing. It makes the marriage pleasant, doesn't it? It makes a, a working relationship very pleasant when you're, when you're unified and cooperatively working together. And I love the fact that the Bible tells us, Psalm 133, when brethren are dwelling in unity, it says, there the Lord commands the blessing, life forevermore. Now, I don't know what that means, but I like the idea of God not just blessing, but God saying, I'm going to command my blessing. That sounds like a little extra emphasis. God says, I'll command a blessing when I see unification. Life forevermore. It's almost as if God infuses and renews vitality in relationships when unity happens. 
So that's why it's wise to pursue unity. And Paul says, look, it really bring me joy for you to be of one heart, mind, and purpose. But Paul says, honestly, you have no idea the benefit you're going to reap yourself. Because if you become unified and you pursue unity, he says it's going to renew vitality in your relationship like a way never before. It will bring back life in a wonderful way. Well, having looked at Paul's request for unity, which then, as I said, flows into further description of what it means to treat one another properly, I want to draw your attention back to verse 1. Because there, as I said, I think Paul there establishes the basis for making the requests he does regarding our relationships in verse one this is sort of the basis now of it all he says therefore if there is consolation in christ if comfort of love if there's any fellowship of the spirit and if any affection of mercy in other words paul saying if those things be true if those things in verse one are true that there is encouragement in christ and there is fellowship and partnership with the spirit if those things are true he says then you can fulfill my joy by being like-minded of the same love and one accord and one mind. In other words, Paul's seeking to indicate this. He's saying you have all the necessary resources you need to do the things I'm asking of you. You really do, he's trying to say. Verse 1, he's trying to say, look, this is the basis. You, if you're a Christian and you have fellowship with the Holy Spirit... If you're experiencing the comfort of God's love yourself, if you're experiencing encouragement from Christ, and you're experiencing affection and mercy, then he's trying to say, look, you have all the necessary resources to get along with people. You have all the necessary resources to experience unity. In fact, notice in verse 1, there's sort of that uh, repeated if statement in the language that Paul uses there, almost as if like he's implying a rhetorical question He's making statements that sort of sound like they're in question form. He's kind of like asking something where the obvious answer is a yes. Does this exist? The idea is yes. Paul's basically saying, tell me, he's asking, tell me, have you experienced any consolation in Christ? Paul's saying, tell me, is it true? Have you ever experienced any comfort from his love before? Have you ever experienced fellowship with the Spirit? Again, the implied idea, of course we have. Paul's saying, then if those things are true, then you certainly have what you need to do what I'm asking. In fact, the word if there, when you look at it, in the tense it's in in the Greek, it's actually a fulfilled action. The language is almost difficult the way it reads in the English, but that word literally is in the form of speaking of a fulfilled action. We might say, in a more understandable way, since, instead of if, or in view of the fact that, in other words, it might be easier to read verse 1, since there is consolation in Christ, since there is comfort of love, and since there is fellowship of the Spirit. Or we might say, in view of the fact that there is encouragement in Christ, in view of the fact that there is comfort in His love, in view of the fact that there is fellowship with the Spirit, therefore, you can do these things I'm asking, he's saying. He's wanting them to consider that what we've experienced in our benefit of a relationship with the Lord helps us possess what we need to do, what needs to be done to treat one another properly. So in verse 1 here, let's consider the, the, the couple of things Paul's drawing our attention to. He's reminding us of, first of all, he's reminding us that as Christians, we've experienced encouragement from being in a relationship with the Lord. That word consolation, your translation may render it, I believe the NIV, New American Standard, render that word encouragement. And he's saying, look, it is true in view of the fact that we've experienced encouragement from our relationship with Christ. And that word that he uses there, consolation or encouragement, it literally is the same term that Jesus uses to refer to the Holy Spirit in John 14 to 16. It speaks of a helper. In view of the fact that you've experienced the help of Jesus coming alongside of you to assist you, he's saying. He says that should give you incredible incentive to be the same way in your treatment towards others. Again, consider, he's saying, consider when your life, and I know I can think back to my life, consider when your life was an absolute mess before you met Christ. Was it not encouraging? When your life was an absolute mess before you met Christ, was it not incredibly encouraging that Jesus came to you and he accepted you just like you were? Was that not incredibly encouraging? And that not only did he accept you right where you were with all your baggage and issues, he didn't say, get your life together and then you can follow me. 
He said, no, give me your mess and I'll help you get your life together. And was it not incredibly encouraging that he took us in the state we were in and then he patiently, lovingly restored us and helped us to begin to experience change and transformation? He says, wasn't that incredibly encouraging? And honestly, is it not continuously encouraging that despite all of our shortcomings still and all of our continuous failures, even as Christians, and the many times that we still on occasion fail and make mistakes, is it not incredibly encouraging that Jesus doesn't just cast us off? That he doesn't just condemn us and say, you blew it. That's it. You've blown it three times in this area. I'm done. Find somebody else to follow. Right? He doesn't do that. Instead, he patiently, lovingly, in his grace and compassion, says, you know what? Yeah, the righteous falls seven times, but oh, rise. And listen, I don't condemn you. Let's just go and sin no more. And how encouraging is that, that he continues to bear with us in our weaknesses and when we backslide and we make mistakes, it, the encouragement of Christ, he comes alongside and he says, all right, come on, I forgive you. Let's get back on track here and, and let's continue to move forward. It's not the end. And Paul says, isn't that encouraging? And he says, haven't you also secondly experienced comfort from the reassuring love of God, the love of God shown to you? Again, consider the fact of how when we were unworthy sinners, we were enemies of God, the Bible says, because of our ungodly conduct. And yet God showed his love for us. Romans 5, 8 says God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, the Bible teaches that before I was saved, when I was unconverted still, and I was living in ungodly conduct in my sin, the Bible says I honestly was an enemy of God. And that bugs some people. Enemy of God, that's a little strong, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I may not be following God. I may not have signed the, you know, the, 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 the agreement and entered into a relationship, but I am certainly not his enemy. The Bible says either you're for him or you're against him. And if you're not for him, the Bible says you're still against him. There's only two sides. You're still in the And the Bible actually says that my sin makes me not only not at peace with God, but I'm literally an enemy of God because there's still sin in me that I haven't accepted Jesus' forgiveness for yet. And so that sin makes me an enemy of God. That's the condition of the unconverted soul. But the Bible says when we were enemies of God, God demonstrated his love in this, that Christ died for us when we were still ungodly, that Jesus showed that incredible love to sacrifice himself, to demonstrate God's great love for us despite our condition. 1 John 4 says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the payment, for our sins. 1 John 3.16, regarding Jesus, says, By this we know love, because Jesus laid down his life for us. And I'll tell you, when you first experience that kind of love for yourself, and you, for the first time, truly experience God's love for you, it'll mess you up, man. <laughs> it will transform your life, does it not? When you experience the reassuring love of God that though I am a wretch and I'm unworthy and you truly realize who you are before a holy God and to realize the reassurement of God's love for you, that really just transforms a person's life. And if it weren't enough that he demonstrated his love for us on Calvary 2,000 years ago, is it not true that God keeps revealing his love continually? And in all the little different ways in our lives, how he just keeps showing us he loves us, and how comforting is that when it happens? The ways in which this last week, or maybe the last month, or this last year, where, where God's reassured you of his love for you in the things he's done or the prayers he's answered, the ways he worked and you experience the love of God and how comforting is that? And Paul says, look, if we've experienced the comfort of his love, if we've experienced it, he's saying in view of that, certainly we can express his love to comfort one another when it's needed. Certainly we can extend the same thing. 1 John 4.11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Peter said it this way, 1 Peter 4 eight, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Again, offenses, mistakes, things we do to irritate, bother, disturb. When they says, man, if you just love, it's amazing how just loving one another tremendously can kind of just let all the little differences and, and issues, it just, it just kind of covers stuff. 
hey man, love is more important. Yes, yes, you irritate me. Yes, I just offended you. But you know, we, we love each other. We love each other. And he says, love, it can just cover a multitude of sins, that reassuring, comforting love. Thirdly, he says, as Christians, we've also, he says in verse 1 there, experienced the fellowship of the Spirit. And our word fellowship there is the Greek word koinonia. It speaks of partnership. And he's reminding us how as a result of salvation, we have all now experienced the partnership of the ministry of God's Holy Spirit. That when we got converted, the Spirit of God that was convicting us, drawing us to Jesus... When you say yes to Jesus Christ and you experience your day of salvation, then the Spirit of God indwells us. And the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and He assists us to have a relationship with God. And the Holy Spirit indwelling us partners with us and He enables us to live the way God asks, that we can't live on our own. I can't live the way the Bible says. My humanity doesn't even want to live the way the Bible says. My sinful nature, maybe you're more spiritual than me, but my sinful humanity reads the Bible. I don't want to be like that. I want to be selfish. I want to lie and cheat and steal and rob. and do. That's my natural inclination. Maybe I'm much worse than you, but my flesh doesn't. But the Spirit of God comes inside of us and He gives us a new heart and a new nature. And He says, Tony, I can enable you to live the way God asks of you. I will give you the power to live differently. The fellowship of the Spirit, the partnership of the Spirit. Romans 8 tells us how through partnership with the Spirit, we can then live supernaturally. We can live differently. So he says, in view of the fact that you have fellowship with the Spirit, you do have resources to get along with people. You do have the enablement to treat people properly. Listen to Galatians 5. It says, walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then he mentions the works of the flesh, which are evident. He lists them. He throws in there hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions. He says, this is what comes from the flesh, the sinful nature. Then he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit, who we now have fellowship and partnership with, the fruit of the Spirit born in your life is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Again, Paul's trying to remind these believers, he's trying to say to you and I, listen, isn't there fellowship with the Spirit? And if there's fellowship with the Spirit, then you can treat each other properly. You can get along, he's saying. You can be gentle. You can be loving. You can have self-control in the way that you interact with one another. And he says, have you not experienced as well affection and mercy? Again, the Lord has shown us these things. We've all experienced them. And he says, again, the point being here, verse 1 to 2, is if these things are true, in view of the fact that you've experienced these things from God, then he says, I'm asking you, because you have the resources, I'm asking you, be of one mind, be of one accord, treat one another properly. The point is very simply this, if you've come to Christ, please hear me, if you've come to Christ, you do not lack the resources to get along with other people. If you have come to Jesus Christ, you have supplied supernaturally by God, by His Spirit, by His Son, Jesus Christ. You have supplied to you exactly what you need to experience unity in relationships, to get along with other people, to treat people properly, whether again in your marriage or your family or the church or among the world. And that being said, there is still a responsibility that we each do have. That's what he comes to in verse 3 and 4. He speaks of sort of this attitude that would be required of us. Paul says, do you want to experience unity? Do you want to treat each other properly? He says, well, let me give you some keys to how to do that, what it will require in your attitude. And in verse 3 and 4 now, he gives some commands that, can I just say again, are like counter-cultural to the extreme. They are radical. The things that he asks here, if taken seriously, they're really radically challenging. Look with me what he says in verse 3. He says, let nothing, and I wish it could have just said most things, nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Being ambitious, let me just say, is not wrong. In and of itself, ambition is not a wrong thing. If somebody has godly ambition, which makes them motivated to want to honor God, and it makes them motivated to want to 
to love people and to serve people. That's a wonderful thing. Ambition's not wrong. It's selfish ambition. He's zeroing in on that's the problem, he says there. And that word selfish ambition speaks of that pride and self-love which makes a person pursue self-advancement. It's that self-centeredness within us that causes us to be self-seeking, to pursue our own interests before the interests of other people. In fact, that word, when you look at it in the original language, the root for that term selfish ambition, it literally speaks of, of campaigning for an office or campaigning for a position. Or it also is translated to court popular applause for yourself. That you're courting applause for yourself. You want to be recognized. You want to be admired. You, you want to get the applause. Or like somebody running for office, you're always, you're always looking to try and get the vote somehow to campaign, to get a position, or you know, jockey for some office. And it's that self-centeredness that makes a person self-assertive. And it makes them sort of do whatever it takes to acquire what they want. Selfish ambition. Listen, if you are doing what you do in life to fulfill your own desires, to get what you want, to always your agenda is your desire, your goal, your plan, as a result, I promise you, you are going to be at odds with people. You're going to experience friction with other people. Because at times, what you want is going to run in opposition to what other people want. It's going to run in complete friction to what other people may need or want or desire. And all of a sudden, we find out, do we not, very quickly, if not, God lets you go through a process, the world actually doesn't revolve all around me. Oh, it really doesn't. And if I'm self-centered and I'm selfishly with ambition, always after what I want, my plan, my preference, I'm going to find I'm always going to have friction with people. Because at times my desires are not going to match other people's desires. And what I want isn't going to be what someone else wants. And that's why, listen, that's why selfish ambition hinders unity. Because it damages relationships. Remember James and John in John chapter 20, they wanted position really badly. So much so that they actually got their mom involved. Do you remember the story, John chapter, where, where James and John actually got their mom involved to go to Jesus and say, hey, when you come into your kingdom, can, can Jamesy and, and, and Johnny, my boys, can they sit on your right and left in the kingdom? Can they have position one and two in the kingdom of God? And they actually won position so bad, they actually got their mom involved to try and help advance their cause to promote them. It tells us that when the other disciples saw that happen, that they were very displeased, the other ten. They were angry. I, can you believe that? Now, listen. The other disciples weren't angry, in a sense, because, oh, man, what a bummer. James and John, they used to be such good guys. You know why they were angry? Because they didn't think of it first. It wasn't like that they were going, oh, we really need to pray for them. They're struggling with selfishness. No, they, I can't believe they beat us to the punch. They're trying to get that job. We were looking for that job. And again, that's the whole idea here. Conflict and disunity is often created by selfish ambition among people. It's often the root cause of problems in marriages and families, again, in businesses and even in the church. When somebody's driven for what they want and they will do whatever it takes to get it, it will often, more than not, create friction and problems and conflict in relationships. And see, here's the hard thing. Would you agree? The challenging thing is our world holds something like this up as almost like a meritorious thing. Our world encourages and promotes the idea, listen, if you want to be successful, you got to get a goal and you need to be motivated and whatever it takes to get it, you got to do it. And if you got to cut a few people off along the way or whatever you got to do, you got to promote yourself, man. You got to get yourself out there. You've got to show yourself and sell yourself. And again, it's hard because our world says, look, do whatever it takes. And the Bible says, do nothing. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition. He says, because selfish ambition, again, causes damage. And for healthy relationships to exist, selfish ambition's got to go. It's got to go. He also says, do nothing from conceit. And the idea of conceit or being conceited is basically to have an exaggerated view of yourself. A person who's conceited has an overinflated self-image. It's that twisted ego within us where everything always ends up having to be about me. It's that nature within us where the conceited person, and it can be manifested in many different ways. 
You know, sometimes a conceited person at times, they have such a high view of themselves, they always assume they are the one who is right in every situation. And whether they're conscious of it or not, the conceited person, whether they're conscious of it or not, they come to every situation with the presupposition that, because they have such a high view of themselves, what they believe, think, or their opinion or idea is right, and everybody else has just got to be wrong. And everybody should agree with me. And they have such a high view of themselves, whether they're conscious of it or not, they're actually even shocked and offended when people disagree. Because they have such an inflated view of themselves, they just simply believe, I've always got to be right. And everyone else has got, you've got to be wrong. <laughs> you've just got to be. Well, because conceited is such an inflated view of itself. And to be conceited can manifest itself in many different ways. You know, boasting and bragging being constantly critical of other people, putting them down because we have a sort of a higher view of ourselves, sometimes conceited, you know, kind of manifests itself where we always need to be the center of attention and somehow we always have to somehow make sure we're the center of attention. We're in a conversation, we struggle maybe with, with listening because we always need to interject at least our opinion on the subject. or We have to say something in a sense, rather than just listening at times. Typically, when we think of a conceited person, we might say something like, man, he or she, right? We say, they are so in love with themselves. That's the idea. And see, being conceited, the Bible says, it's really harmful. It's destructive. It hurts relationships. It's damaging. It destroys disunity. And so the Bible says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. He says, verse 3, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That word lowliness of mind, in the secular Greek, it was used in a very demeaning way. That term was used in a derogatory way, where it basically was referring to people who were viewed in society as having no significance. People is a derogatory term. They are so unimportant. They are so lowly in mind and so unimportant and valueless. And now, I love the way God uses things. Here the Holy Spirit uses that same term which they knew in their culture, and he uses that same term to present here and introduce a radical way of thinking in life, whereby in lowliness of mind you conceive, you conceive and esteem others better than yourself. The idea is whereby I rid myself of my natural feeling of self-importance, which is automatically there, I rid myself of my natural feeling of self-importance and I esteem everyone else in my life as more important than me. Everybody is more superior than me. We consider other people as over us and having more value. They matter more. Everyone has greater priority than me. They have more superiority. And you view people in a way whereby what you think or want or prefer, you're always putting that last because you're the least important. Everyone else is more important. Everyone else. And, and it's a mindset whereby you actually consider others better than yourself. You consider others, hey, you're over me. You're more important than me. Everyone else is more important and more superior than I am. That's the idea. And can I just say this morning, could you just imagine if we actually lived out that mindset? Truthfully, if we truly lived out the mindset whereby each of us esteemed others better than ourselves, where we valued Christ as foremost and then everyone else more important than ourselves. Be astonishing. Well, he continues with this idea in verse 4. The idea continues, he says, and let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. The idea is living with other people in mind. Living in a way all the time where I'm not just thinking about me, what I want what am I interested in? What are my interests, my preferences, my desires, in a sense? What works for me? But instead, I'm actively concerned about what others are facing. I'm always trying to take into consideration what do other people need? What solves the interests of others? What would be in the best benefit of other people? What would be to their best interests? It's, it's thinking and taking into consideration what is in the best interests of other people in every moment. In this moment, what would be in the best interest of other people, not me? Or in this situation, what would be in the best interest of the other person instead of me? It's a radical mindset where we live in an attitude where we truly 
seek to pause and consider and take time to really be in consideration of the fact of what is best for those around me. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.24, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. And again, can I say envision, truly. Envision for a moment. I know it's hard. But envision actually trying to live that out literally. Actually trying to literally live out what the Bible says. Isn't that a novel idea? Imagine truly if each one of us, not some of us, if each one sought to look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Man, that like smacks a death blow to my natural selfish tendency. But yet it is something that honors the Lord and allows us to treat each other properly. It allows us to get along. It helps facilitate unity and proper treatment of one another, concentrating on considering others. And again, not just in major things, certainly in major things we ought to take into consideration, but even in minor things, just common courtesy, being sensitive. Hey, again, if I do this, is this in the best interest of somebody else? Am I taking the other person's interest in mind here when I do this or say this? Or It's just common courtesy is what the Word of God is telling us. Again, imagine that in your marriage. Imagine in your marriage if you did things, big and small, always taking into consideration the interests of your spouse and not just yourself. Hey, is this in the best interest of my wife? Is this in the best interest of my husband? Again, big things and even in small, everyday matters. Imagine if we treated each other that way in our families. Imagine, hey, what, what would, let me just not think about my interests. Right now I wanna, I, I wanna play with my electronic or mess around with my iPad, but you know what? I could go help mom do the dishes. And no teenagers, your parents didn't ask me to say that. But imagine that, radical. I wonder what would help mom out. I wonder what could help dad out. And if we in our families took into consideration the interests of one another, it'd be, it'd be astonishing, it'd be radical. Imagine if we treated each other like that in the church, that when we did ministry, we didn't just think about what I want to do, but we took into consideration when we ministered, hey, is the way I'm ministering, I want to take into consideration the interests of others. I want to be thinking about that. Everybody is not like me. And I want to walk in love. What's in the best interest of everyone else, the whole body of Christ around me? It would revolutionize relationships. Now, I'll be the first to admit, I'm challenged by that kind of instruction. That exhortation seems way above and beyond anything that I live in my life. It's so different than what I'm prone to naturally, and it's so different the way that the world is. But what if, what if, by humble faith, we ask the Lord, by your grace, through the fellowship of your spirit and what I experience from you, would you help me, Lord, just me, would you help me not just to be a hearer, but a doer of your word in this week ahead? Let's stand, let's pray. We'll ask our musicians to close us in a final song of worship this morning. Father, thank you for giving us the word of God. And, and Lord, thank you for being willing to say in your word as my God things that even, Lord, great against my flesh and my humanity because, Lord, you created us and you know what works best among us. And, Lord, you've treated us so well. And would you help us to have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus that we, Lord, could be truly other-centered? Help us, Lord. Give us your grace. Even as we sing now, Lord, Prompt us by your spirit maybe to respond to what your word said directly to us even as we worship through this song. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.